Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Carl Delfeld will join us to discuss power rivals. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, global events have brought to light the ongoing struggles between the United States and China. Well, how will these powers define the next decade and beyond? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Carl Delfeld. Mr. Delfeld is Hay Seward Senior Fellow at the Center for Economic Security, Chief Global Analyst at Cabot Wealth, and Managing Partner of Black Thread LLC. He has penned the new book, Power Rivals, America and China's Superpower Struggle. Mr. Delfeld, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Great to be with you. Well, certainly a great book that discusses America and China's. Why had you decided to put the book together? Well, I was in Colorado for 20 years raising a family, and my background is primarily as an Asia and emerging market analyst. And I could see year by year how China was rising and the U.S. was being very complacent So I moved to Washington, D.C. about five years ago to try to raise the sense of urgency about China to make the point that America is in uncharted territory as we face a very determined and disruptive peer rival in China. China is much more a test for the United States than, for example, Japan when we had the economic battles with them or the Soviet Union in the first Cold War because they're what they call in the Pentagon, a full-spectrum rival, economic, military, ideological, technology. Their system as a communist country, the best way to think of them is that they're a, a tech totalitarian state. So they have very strong central control. That's why I wrote the book. And I thought the 2020s, this decade would be a decisive decade. So it's hard to for me to overstate the intensity and the gravity of the rivalry. Most people who become aware of that is really in terms of technology and the flow of technology between the states and China. Well, the technology does get a lot of attention. It's part of it because it's, of course, technology in the world we live in today. Technology is very much tied to economic and national security. And that's another thing we've learned. And the pandemic has sort of driven that home, that economic security is in many ways, the same thing as national security and defense and our defense base and the contractors. I mean, they're all basically tech companies. And China has come a long, long way in becoming a tech rival. In the 80s and 90s, a lot of people thought they were just making T-shirts and footballs and baseballs and cookware. But now we know they're caught up in many, many areas. And semiconductors, for example, are getting a lot of tension these days because that's the brains in in just about everything. But yeah, China has come very, very fast. I mean, one, one way that your listeners might grasp how fast China has come on 
in the last decade or two is so if you if you think of the rivalry as a football game the score for example in the year 2000 just before china joined the wto the world trade organization they only represented three percent of global gdp and the united states was 28 percent so that that would be a huge lead in a super bowl whereas now as of the end of last year the score is 24 to 17. So the U.S. is about 24% and China now is 17%. So it's a very different situation. And to make matters even more concerning, keep in mind that for China and Taiwan, Asia and the Pacific Rim are home games. And they're definitely away games more than 8,000 miles away from Washington, D.C., and the trajectory of the game is certainly not the same for both sides. Right. Well, it kind of cuts both ways. I mean, it's really interesting. You could you could really think and talk about this topic, U.S.-China rivalry, for a long, long time, because in some ways we have the same problems, right? I mean, we both have pretty high debt. We want more economic growth. China slowed quite a bit from, you know, the double-digit 11 12% a year, which people didn't quite realize that in seven years you double your economy, whereas we've been growing maybe two or 3% on average over the last couple of decades. So you can see they, they like, like, like uh, a runner, a long distance runner, you're looking back and you're seeing your adversary get closer and closer. So there's some similarities, but we have very different systems. Of course, we're an open democracy. They're a closed authoritarian state. So when they make a decision, they can make it quickly. We, being in Washington, and, and your listeners know how Washington works, it doesn't work all that well. Decisions take a long time. So China looks at us, and it's important to see how they look at, look at us. They see in America distracted, divided, and in decline. And we see China as a country that is disruptive and adversarial. Many would go as far as to call them uh, an enemy, but I think that a rival probably captures the competition and the situation better than any other word. When China began to change in the 2000s, there was this feeling that with opening of capitalist markets there, that it would just really be a, a competition of who wins out with the better products, but the, it's not really worked out that way. Yes, we seem to have forgotten that China is a communist country. <laughs> we thought, you know, there was, it was, there was a naivete among many, that China would become more like us. And my reading of it from the early 1990s when I was in Asia, working at the Asian Development Bank, representing the U.S. there, and as a business person in Asia, was that they, they had no intention of ever becoming a democratic state. They basically hit it well. And the other point is that the heart of our economic system is the stock market. And our stock market greatly benefited from U.S. companies, S&P 500 companies, shifting their manufacturing to China, lower labor rates, lower cost of land, centralized production in one place, were the fuel for China's rise. Not just us, it was Europe, it was many countries, Germany's a big investor, Japan, South Korea. So we basically gave them the capital and so the technological know-how through licenses, some was, was stolen, yes, definitely, but we gave up a lot willingly with the goal of making more profits and having a higher stock price. So China used that as a leverage against us and very cleverly, and now it's coming home. I mean, even Apple, 
right? Apple stock now is under a little bit of pressure because people are getting very nervous that Apple makes well over 90% of its products in terms of assembly and to a great degree design in China. So tremendous stock and company, but now now they face a, a huge challenge. It's basically a very difficult situation what they're going to do about having all their production in a country that's unfriendly to the United States. What path do you then see for the next 10, 20 years? Well, I think it's fair to say in the balloon incident over the, I think, highlighted that the U.S. is not as complacent as it once was. Uh, particularly in Washington, everybody's talking about China. It's every, everybody's a China hawk, whereas two or three years ago, there was a lot of people still defending China. So I think we've woken up, but we really need to kind of pull together to confront, compete, and coordinate both here in Washington and in the United States and with allies to be strong. You know, we need to shift some of our hard power towards Asia, towards the Pacific, and Ukraine definitely is an impediment to that effort. So on the defense side, we definitely have to increase our deterrence. Commercially, we need to selectively, strategically start moving some of these very advanced, especially technology, back to the United States or at least to North America. And we have to stop feeding the Japanese, the Chinese machine. Wall Street firms, Silicon Valley is still injecting quite a bit of capital into China. Somehow that has to stop. And then really, we just have to get stronger at home because in the end, it's the strongest country across the board that will win out in terms of the rivalry. And I certainly expect the United States to come out the winners, but it's going to be a struggle. That's why I use the word struggle because, and the Chinese feel the same way. They want to be dominant, not only in Asia, but I believe throughout what people call Eurasia. So it stretches through Russia and into Europe. That's a huge continent. And looking back in history, whoever controls or is the dominant power in Eurasia is the leading power of the world. So, and then the other, the other thing we really seem to have missed is that China is a big country, 1.4 billion people. We're 330 million people. So almost four times larger. And I think people tended not to pay attention to that. I'll give you one really stunning statistic, I, I believe. And that is that our four largest cities, New York, Chicago, Houston, Los Angeles combined, and then you can throw in two of the largest Canadian cities, Toronto and Montreal, and you basically get up to the size of Shanghai. So that all, this all fueled China's rise. The speed and the scale is really without precedent. So a lot of things had to go right, but we sort of played into their hands so now we've got a challenge on our hands. So in a way, it can make America a better, a better country if we react in the right way. A unique rivalry, very much unlike the Iron Curtain of the Cold War, as you put it, the sort of the Silk Curtain, somewhat dependent on China. And to compete, we have to draw the right boundaries. Yes. Yeah. I think Silk, yeah, I use the, the phrase Silk Curtain because we all know the Iron Curtain, right? And the Iron Curtain is really in flames right now, isn't it? With the Ukraine-Russia conflict, nobody expected that. And that was definitely China benefits more from what's going on with Ukraine and Russia than the United States. That's for sure. Pretty clear that Russia and China are 
if not allies, strong partners. And then you can bring in Iran, some other countries as well. And China is the senior by far. I mean, their economy is 10 times that of Russia. And Russia, in turn, is 10 times that of Ukraine. So it's a very interesting situation. But I think China gave Putin at least a yellow light, if not a green light, to take action, invade Ukraine. In a way, it's very much distracting the United States from doing what it has to do in Asia and the Pacific. China's so far away, and Taiwan's 8,000 miles from Washington, D.C., and 5,000 from Hawaii, and even 1,700 miles from Guam, our main base in the Western Pacific. So what China is going to do, I really think that that region, South China Sea, East China Sea, tensions are rising. Something could happen that could lead to conflict, which really has to be handled carefully. It's a matter of deterrence and diplomatic skill that we really need in order to keep Asia Pacific open, right? Freedom of navigation. And that's where the Silk Curtain comes in because unlike an Iron Curtain, this Silk Curtain, trade goes through it, people go through it, shipping, air flights and tourism, investment. So it's, it's, a, it's a much more complex situation than we had in the first Cold War. Going forward, where you see are the biggest hotspots focusing on? Well, I think Taiwan definitely is the most flammable, if I could put it that way, flashpoint in Asia, because I think China is very much determined to, to bring Taiwan in, 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 into the fold, united with the motherland, so to speak. And I don't think they're going to do it the way some people talk about. I mean, I don't think there's going to be an amphibious D-Day type invasion. Taiwan's about 100 miles from mainland China, 24 million people. An annual defense budget for China is 25 times that of Taiwan. So they're much stronger. But I think what they will do is probably do kind of a takeoff on what they did when Nancy Pelosi visited last year. Uh, some sort of blockade. They could cut off the internet. They could. There could be cyber attacks. They could use sensors. There's. There's a lot of things they could do to isolate Taiwan. And whether or not the United States would be able to respond in time, what Japan would do. There's a lot of unknowns. So it's a very delicate situation. But the stronger we can be, and uh, we don't want to push them into a corner. So it's really a matter of judgment. That, so that'd be one. North Korea, nobody talks about, but they're close to to having uh, nuclear weapons and certainly have the capability to inflict some damage. The East China Sea, South China Sea. So I really think we need to disengage when we can from Europe. We need to shift the responsibility for Europe onto the EU. After all, there are 27 countries with a very sizable GDP. And I think it's time for them to take the lead. I mean, the U.S. can play a role, but we, we need to pay attention to where the most important part of the world is for our future. And that's, in my mind, definitely Asia, the Asia Pacific, Indo-Pacific, Western Pacific, whatever you want to call it, because that's where the center of gravity of the world economy is now. Well, we were talking with Mr. Carl Delfeld. His new book is Power Rivals, America and China's Superpower Struggle. Mr. Delfeld, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. 
and that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.